Father God, we thank you for a beautiful day outside. Lord, we thank you for the breath in our lungs. We thank you for our church family this morning, Lord, and just ask that you would bless our time together. You would bless the reading of your word. Uh, God, that you would speak to us as we look into your word and contemplate what it means for us, what it means for our church, what it means for our city. And just ask that your Holy Spirit would flow through this room now, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I saw the map when, when um, Frank was talking about Cambodia, and just to the northwest of Cambodia, northeast of Cambodia, uh, is a country called Laos. Uh, and in that whole region, there's a people group called the Hmong people, H-G-M-O-N-G, I believe it is. And I remember seeing a video of a CMA um, missionary that went to that area in, in Laos. And there was, I believe it was a woman there that was very sick. And they have witch doctors there. There was a very powerful witch doctor in her village. And they kept bringing her to the witch doctor. And the witch doctor told her what to do. And it was not working. Uh, they were doing everything they could. And then this white guy shows up and prays to this Jesus dude who they couldn't see and they didn't know much about. And suddenly this woman gets better. And so the, the witch doctor ends up becoming a Christian. Then the whole village becomes Christian. And now in the CMA, the Hmong people is, I believe, one of the largest people groups that uh, are in our denomination, just from that one village, that one thing. Um, and it kind of, you know, seeing that on the map, it, it sparked a thought because we're going to talk a little bit about discouragement today. And this woman was so frustrated that, you know, she was sick and that she was doing everything the witch doctor told her to do and she couldn't get better. She couldn't figure out what was going on. We've all been discouraged at some point, have we not? We've all faced discouragement. We've all faced hard times. We've had trials in our life. Uh, we may have been bullied. We may have been intimidated. We may have had financial strain. We've had uh, circumstances that, that make us question, why? Why is this happening to me? Sometimes we, we ask God, why are you doing this to me? Why aren't you helping me through this? And some of us have gotten to the point where we question whether or not we'll make it at all. I think we've all had those moments where Maybe, maybe we're not suicidal, but we're just kind of like, I just wish it would all just end. There's a man named Igor Sikorsky. Uh, first of all, he has an awesome name. If Igor was standing here right now, Igor Sikorsky, would you not be intimidated just by the name alone? <laughs> he lived from 1889 to 1972. As a child, uh, he had a great love of art, and he was always pursuing the natural sciences. He was fascinated by the world around him. Later on, he pursued engineering. When he was 12 years old, uh, he made a small rubber band powered helicopter, which at that point, helicopters did not exist. So he obviously had some brains as well. But at that same age, when he was 12 years old, his parents were talking to him, told him uh, that it had already been proven that human flight was impossible. People had tried, people had failed, let that dream go. In 1908, Igor uh, heard about the success of the Wright brothers, and he decided that he was going to change the trajectory of his life. Uh, he later said, within 24 hours of hearing that, I decided to change my life's work. I would study aviation. So as a small boy, he was told, what you want to do is impossible. But then he heard just a spark of, of the possibility, and he decided to pursue it. He went on to design and improve multiple fixed-wing aircraft as well as helicopters. I just realized, Jimmy, I'm probably talking your language right now. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, he created the Vought Sikorsky VS-300, which was the first viable American helicopter. And the design of that helicopter is the design that most modern helicopters still use to this day. Uh, so Igor went on to uh, have an American factory. He was very successful. But in his factory, he had a sign that said this. According to recognized aerotechnical tests, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. So how do we deal with discouragement? How do we deal with opposition? Where do we find that spark of hope like Igor found? Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God, under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. As we go through uh, the book of Nehemiah, we're, we're going to look at chapter 4 this morning. Last week we looked at chapter 3, and chapter 3 details how uh, different sections of the wall were rebuilt by different families. And, and the entire Jewish people kind of came together, worked as a team, and got the wall built. But in chapter 4, uh, if, if you remember, we looked at how chapter 3 was kind of a break in Nehemiah's narrative. right? They believe it was inserted later. And so you might read chapter 3 and you might see the success and think, well, they, they just prayed, God answered the prayer, and from that point on it was smooth sailing. But what we're going to see is that it was struggle from start to finish to get the wall completed. And we already saw in chapter 2 that there was opposition almost immediately as Nehemiah uh, openly declared what his intention was to rebuild the wall. There was almost immediate opposition. If you remember Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, they were named in chapter 2, and they immediately started to try to mess with Nehemiah's plan. They started to uh, work against them in opposition to what he was trying to do. And we looked at the fact that they were powerful men. They were well-networked men. And so the fact that they wanted to stop Nehemiah, who was one guy with a small band of protection around him, trying to work with the Jewish people who have been oppressed for years now under the various kingdoms that took over their land, it seems like the odds were stacked against them. So we're going to look at chapter 2 right now, starting in verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah writes, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. So the Jews, again, if we put ourselves in their place, 
we can look at chapter 3 and think, oh, they just banded together and they put the wall up and everything was great. But we can see here that the Jews uh, were already weak, right? They were taken over by a country. They lost their temple, which was uh, their symbol of God's presence. They had a way of worshiping. They, they used to go to the temple to worship, and that was stripped from them. They're under this Persian empire right now, so they're weak. They're discouraged. They're defeated. Their city lay in ruins. Their temple is destroyed, and they felt separated from God's presence. And so we might read that and hear that Sam Ballot and, and Tobiah are just saying mean things to them and think, well, just press on. But they're already defeated. So those words are just like piling on top of their discouragement. I was watching recently uh, a documentary about a young singer named Billie Eilish. I don't know if you've heard of her before. Do you know how old she is? Like 18-ish now, maybe? She's been famous for probably a couple years now. She's probably around 18, something like that. Um, her music is known to be kind of dark, and it can be depressing. And I was watching this documentary about her, and my heart just ached as I watched it. Just kind of seeing how she interacted with the world and, and how she perceived her life. And she wanted so badly to express her love for her fans to her fans. But it, in my view, it wasn't really healthy, you know, because she can't really love them. She doesn't know them. And they can't really understand what love means because they can't get near her. So it was like what they desperately wanted, she couldn't give. And so there was this kind of just a depressing depressing sense over it. Um, and I remember I was talking to Micah about it and just saying, like, I think what made my heart ache is that what they're feeling, that void they have in life, could be solved with a relationship with Jesus. But it just seems overwhelming. <laughs> it's overwhelming to have that many kids just so depressed, so desperate. And we have the answer, but we can't get it to them. Towards the end of the movie, um, her mother is talking about the fact that people kind of talk down on her because her lyrics are dark and depressing. But she pushes back, and I found myself agreeing with her, these are dark and depressing times for kids. This is a tough time to be a teenager. So I think she's right. I think there is discouragement all around us. And just in the past year and a half, I have felt it myself very deeply. If you think about the past year and a half or so, we'll just use 2020 as the marker because that's, that's the marker right now. Tell me uh, if... Something in here doesn't sound true to you. Democrats all think Republicans are ruining the country. Republicans all think Democrats are ruining the country. Independents, we understand what's going on. Democrats and Republicans are ruining the country. <laughs> racism, uh, it felt to me like we had come so far and suddenly racism is all around us. Our immigration system is a mess. Our education system is a mess. Our healthcare system is a mess. COVID, enough said. <laughs> Climate change is a challenge. There are rising sea levels. I was reading an article about the Florida Keys where the, the sea level keeps rising and people are going to lose their homes soon. China is challenging the U.S. Russia is challenging the U.S. Iran is challenging the U.S. North Korea is challenging the U.S. Israel and Palestine are fighting again. And on and on and on and on. 
And that was just this past week. I feel like we are living in very discouraging times. And so the question is, how do we deal with discouragement? And this morning we're going to look at how did Nehemiah deal with discouragement? He was trying to rally a beaten people, an oppressed people, a weak people, to do something for God, to rebuild their city. But they were so beaten down that just the words of those two powerful men was enough to stop them. If we keep looking at chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Nehemiah's response was this, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So how did Nehemiah deal with discouragement? He had vision. He had a vision of what could be. And he recognized it wasn't his vision. He had caught his vision from God. It was based on God's promises for his people. And that vision was that the city would be rebuilt. That the walls would go back up around the city. The temple would be rebuilt. God's presence would be among his people again. And the city would flourish again. Now if you think about that prayer that I just read, that's an angry prayer. There's heart in that prayer. Nehemiah was ticked off. And he was expressing that to God. But in the midst of that, he realizes that the fight is God's fight. It's not his fight. It's God's fight. And so it says, so we rebuild the wall. The fight is God's, but the Jews are God's warriors in the fight. For whatever reason, God has a vision for our world, for our city, for our church. He has a vision, but he chooses to use us to bring that vision to fruition when we're obedient to him. We are called to be more and more like Jesus and to live in his presence. And we are called to a purpose much bigger than ourselves, to expand the kingdom of God here on earth. And so for each one of us individually, that's the vision that we need to keep before us. Every day, we need to wake up and we need to decide, today I want to be more like Jesus. And then as we walk out our front door, we need to recognize we are walking onto our mission field. And we are the ones that God has purposed to bring his kingdom to earth. We live in discouraging times. All the things that I listed are very discouraging. Those are things that have troubled me over the past year and change. But all those things work against the power of God, against the kingdom of God, rather. Now, I don't say that to discourage us, that, that all those discouraging things work against the kingdom of God. I say that to say they are fighting the wrong fight because God is a God of victory. The battle's already been won. And so as we look at all those discouraging things and we see them butting up against the kingdom of God, we can realize that God is already victorious. The battle's already won. 
And so that should remove some of that discouragement. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail over Christ's church and over the kingdom of God on earth. We are in a city right now that is largely beat down from my perspective, from the things I've heard you say. There's discouragement in this city. Poverty, I was looking at the poverty levels in Wilkes-Barre. The poverty rate in our city is about 28.6%, which means one out of every three and a half residents of Wilkes-Barre lives in poverty. That's crazy. The poverty rate in the entire state of Pennsylvania is about 13.1%, which means our city is more than double the poverty rate of our entire state. Our city is plagued by addiction. Uh, Mike and I, we, we brought the meal over to the square yesterday, um, and we got there a little early. We pulled up and just waited for the, the guy from the mission to come in the truck. And as we were there, this woman that we love dearly, her name, I'll just say her name is Lynn. Um, she's a sweet, sweet woman, but she is just stuck in alcoholism. And she got arrested right in front of us as we're sitting there waiting for the the mission truck to come because she was drunk and she was not in the right mind. (laughs) There's addiction all over the city. Mental health issues are causing all kinds of problems in the city. Racism is still a huge issue in this city. So how do we keep from getting discouraged? Again, as, as... an average of 24 people in a city with so many issues, how do we keep from getting discouraged? And we do that by realizing that all of that is pushing up against the kingdom of God. And that is exactly why God has us here. If you want to know what the solution to those problems is, it's us. We are the solution that God has put in place in this city We need to see God's vision for the city. We need to look past all those discouraging things and see what God is doing, that God is moving, that the churches in this city are coming to life, and God is calling out his people to start to fight against those discouraging things. And so as Nehemiah butts up against the discouragement of his people, his solution was twofold. One, to see God's vision for their city. And two was to show up, just to show up. Make becoming like Jesus your daily vision. Keep that vision in front of you. Make it your goal each and every day. Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And there's two things I want to point out from that. First, fix our eyes on Jesus. Those are simple instructions. Not easy, but simple. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we keep him central, that's the start to everything. The second thing is for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How could Jesus, knowing what was coming on the cross, the suffering he was about to endure, the betrayal, everything that came about through the crucifixion, how could he find joy in that? The joy that was set before him was knowing the end result. It was us. 
because he knew that by suffering and dying on the cross, he would bring us back into God's family, back into the fold, back into the family. And that was enough for him to have the courage to go through what he did. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Uh, if you're newer to following Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books are the books that primarily teach about Jesus. They have his teachings in it. So if you want to know Jesus, go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and start reading about what he taught and how he responded to the people around him. John 14, 23, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. This verse blew my mind this week. For some reason, it hit me powerfully. Anyone who loves me, so if you love Jesus, you will obey my teaching. Right? We need to follow Jesus, not just know about him, but we need to learn what he taught, and we need to follow those teachings. So again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, see what he taught. And see if you're living according to those teachings or not, and adjust your life that way. But then the second part of the verse, my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. When we put our faith in Christ and when we seek to follow him and obey his teaching, his presence will be with us. The cross of Jesus was the remedy of the loss of God's presence among humanity. Remember when we looked at Genesis 3, the original sin, the biggest consequence was loss of God's presence. The temple system was to try to accommodate on some measure the loss of God's presence among his people. But the cross of Jesus was the final remedy for that loss of presence. And think about this. If God is with you, if you know God is for you, if you know God will never leave you, what in life is there to get discouraged about? There's a lot of tough circumstances. There's a lot of trials. There's a lot of hardship in life, right? We can't deny that. But if we know for a fact that God is with us through it, it takes away the discouragement because we realize that battle is not ours. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in a synagogue in Nazareth, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Church, that is the vision that God has for Wilkesbury To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. So how do we fulfill that? We love Jesus, fix our eyes on him, and we show up. In Nehemiah it says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. 
continuing in chapter 4. It says, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet his threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. So we've already met Sanballat, we've met Tobiah, right? We talked about the fact they were powerful men, they were well-networked men, and they were standing in opposition to what Nehemiah was trying to do. Uh, Sanballat was from Samaria, which is kind of northwest of uh, Israel. Tobiah was from the east. The Arabs are from the southern section. The Ammonites were east, and uh, the people of Ashdod were from the west. So they were effectively surrounded at this point by opposition. All the people surrounding that city were now standing in opposition to what they were doing. The people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble, we cannot build the wall. The discouragement was starting to creep in. The fear of those people surrounding them in opposition was beginning to creep in. They were growing tired. They were growing overwhelmed. The discouragement was starting to take its effect. Now, City Light Church, you have been through a rough couple of years. We've talked about that. Some of you have opened up to me about some trials that you've gone through just in the past couple of years here, some hurts, some, some hardships, some questions that you had. I'm sure that there have been moments of discouragement as a church. I don't doubt for a second that many of you are tired. There's been frustration as a church, you might have felt lost. You might have felt insignificant in such a huge city with so few people coming together. So how do we recover from that? And again, we go back to Nehemiah. How did Nehemiah encourage his people? Nehemiah continued to keep the vision in front of his people. To always keep the vision in front of the people. God wants this city rebuilt. God has answered our prayer and allowed us to begin to rebuild this wall, and he will not allow that to fail. In verse 13, he says, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So what he does is he keeps the vision before them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And then he tells them to fight for their legacy. It's not enough to just say, God's going to get this done. What he says is, this is what God wants us to get done. And then the people showed up. The people stepped up in faith. They stepped up in courage. And they were willing to stand in the gaps and defend themselves. 
They were defending their legacy. But they remembered always it was God's vision. They were taking part in God's vision, but they did have to show up. He continues on, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the buildings wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So what happens is the people don't let the discouragement overshadow them. Nehemiah continues to keep that vision before them. We will rebuild this wall. God is great and awesome. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So the people don't just pray and ask God that, that they could have a new wall. They pray and ask God to give them success. And then they go out and they do the work. And it takes courage to do that to the point where they're, they're working with one hand and they have a sword in the other because the danger was so imminent. And they knew the opposition was going to try to kill them and they didn't know when or where. So they're, they're, at the same time, they're trying to focus on their wall and their hard work. They're lifting big, heavy rocks and, and this was hard labor. And they're focused on that while also watching the horizon all the time with their weapons in hand because they don't know when the attack's coming. It took great courage. Nehemiah begins to organize their defenses. He has them spread out, but then he realizes how thinly spread they are. And so he says, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Now, trumpets were used uh, throughout ancient history, right? Even in American history, we've seen trumpets being used by the military to signal different things. Trumpets are used throughout ancient civilizations for signaling. And they're used throughout Israel's history for signaling. We see it through many of the Old Testament battles where they blow trumpets in, in the midst of a battle at some point. There are two Hebrew words for trumpet. The first one I'm going to try to say because it's fun. Chatzotra. Uh, if I say it with confidence, you'll believe me, right? Chatzotra. Uh, that's a trumpet, but it was a metal trumpet, and it was typically used for signaling, especially in battles. The second one is called a shofar. And a shofar was multifunctional. They used it for different things. It was, it was for signaling. They did use it for signaling in battles and wars. But they also used it to start off times of worship. And I have a small shofar here. They would take uh, the horn of a ram and they would soak it in water to shape it to the way they wanted it and they would polish it all up. Most of them are like really long. But most of the really long ones are really expensive, so I have this. <laughs> it's enough. So when the Israelites, as a people, would start their times of worship, especially the festivals, the Day of Atonement, all these big events, they would blow the shofar to signify, the signal to the people that the time of worship was beginning. So it was interesting to me uh, that Nehemiah used the shofar as the signal trumpet. 
for their defense. This horn was used in military battles to signal different things, different movements and things. But it was also used for worship. And if we look back at verse 20, he says, Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. That's the purpose of the shofar, right? To signal troops where to move. But then he follows that with, Our God will fight for us. I think he used the shofar because it combined the military, the defense, right? The practical use with an acknowledgement that God is the one fighting for us. It was both to signal movement and to signal worship of God who is great and awesome. Nehemiah recognizes, above all, that the battle is God's. That the people will fight it. The people stand in defense. They are ready to defend themselves. But they're recognizing that the battle is God's. And they are worshiping God because he will fight for them. And they're recognizing that the vision they are pursuing is from God. And so when God fights for them, God will win that battle. They keep the vision always before them. As we think about our church and the things that we would love to see our church be and do in the next couple of years, the words of Jesus constantly pop in my head. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Don't worry about the building. Don't worry about the sound system. Don't worry about the programming. Worry about his kingdom, the vision. Imagine God's kingdom here in Wilkesbury. And how do we get there? His righteousness. We obey his teachings. And he promises, I will be with you. The Father will be with you. I will be with you. Remember, we looked at the unity last week. When, when we are united, we experience that same unity that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit experience. When that's our focus, when we put Jesus in the front, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. When we try ourselves each and every day to submit ourselves to the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit for help. Make me more like Jesus. When we pursue that righteousness, the kingdom of God emerges in our own life. The kingdom of God emerges in our family. The kingdom of God emerges in our church. And next thing you know, it's three years later, and we can see the kingdom of God in our city. In chapter 4, starting in verse 21, Nehemiah says, So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor my guards, my guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when we went for water. So rather than the people coming from kind of their disparate places, they would all kind of come together and stay together and they would live together, and they would protect one another, and they would get the work done together. Everyone was rebuilding, and everyone was defending. They kept that vision before us. This is what God wants us to do. This is the work God put before us. And everyone was rebuilding, 
and everyone was defending. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. Proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. That is the vision, I think, that Jesus put before us. That's what he wants us to do in our city. What are the things that we battle? Addiction. What does Jesus say? Freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight. Set the oppressed free. Jesus has the power to set people free from addiction. That's the vision. What do we do? We keep Jesus first and we show up. When you know someone struggling in addiction, it, it can be awkward, it can be hard, you don't know the right words. We tend to back away, we tend to pretend like it's not there, or we say, hey, I'll pray for you. Show up. Be there. Develop that relationship where in love you can say, you know there's a better life for you, right? I love you. I will walk with you through this. What about poverty? People are in poverty. Oh, that's too bad. Maybe I'll bring them a bag of groceries. That's a start, but that's not going to get them out of poverty. How do we break the chains of poverty? We love them. We build relationships with them. Yes, bring them food, but find out why they're in poverty. Is there something you can do to help? Are there resources that you can hook them up with? What can we do? How can we as a church step into your life and help you to succeed. Everyone was rebuilding. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. Proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Everyone was also defending. Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, excuse me, after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord, Lord's people. We, go, we, we prepare ourselves to defend ourselves by keeping Jesus first, by fixing our eyes on him, by being in the word of God so that we understand who God is more and more each day, so that we can align ourselves with him, so that God can call out sin in our life that's keeping us from growing, so that he can guide us to that process of repentance, to move past our sin, to recognize the forgiveness we have, and then to go on and redeem what we've been through, our hurts, our habits, our sins, 
our struggles, our abuses, all that garbage that's in our past, he will redeem. As we grow, as we become more like Christ, he'll turn us around and say, hey, check out what you used to be. And now check out where you are. And then next thing you know, we're talking to somebody who's struggling with the garbage that we have in our past. And suddenly we have the Holy Spirit working through us going, hey, you know, I used to be just like that. I know exactly what you're going through. My heart breaks for you because this is what happened to me. But let me tell you about Jesus. God has put a vision before us for our city to break the chains of oppression, to lift people up out of poverty, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? Jesus is coming back. Arguably sooner than later. And I've seen a lot of pastors use that as a threat. You better get yourself right because Jesus is coming back. That's something to celebrate. God is for you. God loves you. Right? You know somebody who's, who's kind of stuck in their life, stuck in poverty, stuck in addiction, whatever it is, and you cast a vision before them. Let me show you what the kingdom of God would be like for you. Let me show you what it would be like if, if you realize how much God loves you, and what he has done for you already. That you don't have to be afraid of him. That you don't have to wait for him to give you the smack you're anticipating. But he's already taken the smack for you. Because he loves you. He wants to set you free. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Nehemiah kept the vision before them. Everybody was rebuilding. Everyone was ready for defense. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. There's plenty to be discouraged about, but discouragement is a choice. If we look out and we see all the challenges and, and all the hardships and all the oppression, it can discourage us, or we can see it as that's what's up against the kingdom of God. But that garbage that we're afraid of is not bigger than our God. And the battle is God's. He calls us to show up, but the battle is his, and it's already won. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we, we confess to you that we too easily get discouraged, that we too easily see the circumstances around us. We see our bank account. We see the bottle of beer in our refrigerator. We see our family members struggling. We see the world around us that just feels like it's falling apart sometimes. People in our country can't get along. We have all these problems, and instead of coming up with solutions, we argue about political positions. For too long, churches have not been working together. 
We've been waiting for the world around us to come back to church instead of going out to them. God, we confess all of that to you. And we ask for you to forgive us this morning. Forgive us for taking our eyes off of you. Forgive us for giving our circumstances too much weight, too much influence over our lives. And God, this morning we want to acknowledge that this battle that we're facing is yours. That you have called us to fight for you, but that battle is already won by you. God, we we pray for each and every one of our lives, Lord. We confess our shortcomings to you and ask that you would help us to rest in you. All those things that we struggle with, Lord, all those discouragements, all the hardships, those are real things that we're facing, Lord, and they are, they are hard to go through and they hurt, brings us pain. But we lay them down to you now. We've tried to fight them, Lord, and, and we can't defeat those circumstances, but we know that you can. And so we lay it down before you. And God, as a church, we do the same for our city. It would be easy for such a small group of people to look at our city and think it's hopeless. It's impossible. There's nothing we can do with 24 people in a city of 41,000 that is so overrun by so many hardships and so much hurt. And so, God, we just lay that down at your feet, too. Help us to not choose discouragement, Lord, but to see the vision that you have put before us, the vision of the kingdom of God in Wilkesbury, the vision of people being set free from addiction, set free from poverty, set free from loneliness, set free from mental health issues, Lord, from all the circumstances that we feel are impossible to overcome. And yet Jesus said that is why he came, to set people free from that. And that vision you've put before us, Lord, we acknowledge that is your fight, and yet you have called us to be your warriors in that. Would you give us the courage that the Jewish people had to step into that fight? to look past our fears, to look past our discouragement, and to see the vision of the kingdom of God thriving in this city. Lord, help us to play our role, but also to give you all the glory and to recognize it is your strength that will allow us any success at all. Give us the courage to do that this morning. Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.